0: We've come a long way, humanity, mankind, that is. We've made great technological advancements, but in all our advancements, we have not conquered the great force of nature. We can predict it or give it our best shot. We can do our best to avoid it or to clean up after it, but we have no control over it. We're reminded of that this week as we hear of a devastating storm in eastern Kentucky that caused water to flow up as high as roofs of houses and carry cars away. Well, this morning, in our passage, in the Gospel of Mark, we read of one man who demonstrates power over nature in Jesus. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Mark chapter 4, verse 35, which you can find on page 839 of the Bibles provided. This morning we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark on the life of Jesus. And I have said over and over again that the book as a whole was written to communicate The person and the work of Christ, his identity, who he is and what he came to do is a constant theme throughout the whole book. Mark seems to write in clusters. And so you may remember back in chapter two, there was a series of five confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees. And then throughout chapter four, we've seen a series of teachings in the form of parables about the kingdom of God. Well, in our text today, Mark is going to shift to a new series. But in this series, it's going to be a set of demonstrations of his authority and dominion over different realms that man does not have. Our text this morning is clear to many. So you might think you know what it says, but let me encourage you not to check out but to pay close attention to what God has to teach us this morning through His Word and to marvel at the person of Jesus. I normally give a main idea up front for you to have in mind about what the text is saying as we go through and study it as kind of a main takeaway. And uh, I could very simply just say that the main idea of this text is that Jesus is God. And I could pray and we could close the service And I think I would have accurately told you the main meaning of this text. But I do think there is more for us to learn than just that. So I have created a more wordy main idea for you note takers. And the wordy main idea is that faith in Jesus calms our fears because he is who he is. Faith in Jesus calms our fears Because he is who he is. And what we'll see as we go through this text is that Mark uses the word great three times as he describes the event. And so I'm going to have three points that follow that word great throughout the text because I think that they communicate the flow of the event accurately. So let's read our text together. And before we read, let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have spoken to us through your prophets, but in these last days, you have spoken to us in your Son, Jesus. Oh, we pray that you would humble us and teach us from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side, Point one, a great windstorm. Mark is a good storyteller, isn't he? This passage picks up right where we left off last week. It says in verse 35, On that day when evening had come. Which means this is the same day, if you'll remember, of the last two weeks of sermons in the parables where Jesus is in a boat just off of the shore teaching a great crowd of people along the shore. Jesus' ministry uh, had been characterized by long days of teaching and preaching and healing, trying to escape crowds. And so I assume that this particular day is no different. Jesus was likely teaching all day for hours at end. And then at some point, he simply tells them, let's go on to the other side from the very boat. Mark says in verse 36, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. Meaning they didn't go back onto the shore after he was done preaching to eat or to change clothes or to gather any kind of supply for the journey. They simply rowed out further and left to go to the other side of the sea. And even from the boat, people are following him. That's a unique detail to Mark, uh, that there were other boats around, following Jesus across. Jesus doesn't give a reason for going to the other side of the sea, but I think we can make a few assumptions. In chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus saw it as his mission to go to different regions, preaching in different synagogues, and we assume preaching about the kingdom of God, about himself. And so far, people have come over from all these different regions, including even Gentile regions, to see him. But he hasn't yet visited the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which is primarily a Gentile area. Just keep that in mind. The sea is basically a large lake. It's about 13 miles long and 8 miles wide, which would probably take about 2 to 3 hours to get across. And even though it's small, it has the potential to be an extremely dangerous place. Great windstorms like the one that Jesus and his disciples encountered Uh, are actually common, though they're less common at night because of the geography. But the positioning of the lake itself is what gives way to these violent storms. The sea is close to 700 feet below sea level. And surrounding the lake, just 30 miles off, are steep mountains that rise over 9,200 feet elevation. So there's a difference of nearly 10,000 feet from the height of these mountains to the low sea of Galilee. And as winds would come from the west, from the Mediterranean Sea, and heat would rise in the mountains, cool air would be funneled through and enter into the Sea of Galilee, causing these violent storms, hurricane-like winds. While these storms were common, I think this one in particular was uniquely dangerous. And I say that for a couple of reasons. One, it happened at night, which is a little unusual. Fishermen tended to go out and fish in the evening or early in the day because uh, temperatures were cooler and the the sea was calmer. Not only that, but don't forget that four of Jesus' disciples were experienced fishermen. They were fishermen by trade and likely grew up on the Sea of Galilee. This is likely their boat. And they would know how to handle storms like this. And yet, the disciples who are with Jesus are terrified. This storm has sent them thrashing about. Now, just imagine for a moment you're sitting on this small boat. These boats were not uh, aircraft carriers, okay? Uh, this is not the Titanic. These boats are typically 27 feet long, about 8 feet wide, and 4 feet deep. So we could easily fit one or multiple of these in this room. The boat was not large. It was likely crammed with people and therefore heavy. By the way, there uh, was a drought in the year 1986, and water levels decreased in the Sea of Galilee and actually uh, revealed one of these fishing boats. And it uh, turns out it is the actual boat that Jesus sat in. Just kidding. We have no idea <laughs> wh- whose boat this is. Jesus's boat didn't sink. Um, but it fits this description, and, and there are pictures of it. It's in a museum, so you can see what this looks like, But the point is, uh, this is basically a glorified raft. Uh, this is not any kind of sturdy ship that's built for weather. It's dated at the right time period as well, which is uh, pretty unique, and um, there are pictures of people standing next to these. Well, it's nighttime. Imagine you're on this small boat with a group of people. Harsh winds come out of nowhere. And suddenly you begin to panic. Mark says in verse 27 that the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Waves are breaking. Some translations say beating into the boat or crashing over into them, filling the boat up. It doesn't take a sailor to know that once water gets in the boat, you're in trouble, right? Especially if the boat is heavy and small. I don't know that they had buckets or anything to get the water out. They certainly didn't have life jackets or lifeboats. And I don't know how scary you think this would be. Um, I've always thought that being out in the middle of the ocean during the night, and especially during the storm, is one of the greatest fears of mine or scariest things that I could do. Uh, And I consider myself a strong swimmer. Uh, I have actually swam out in the ocean at nighttime, and it's terrifying. You have no idea what's underneath you, and no matter how strong of a swimmer you are, the sea takes you where it wants you to go. Well, the disciples, like anyone else, fear for their lives. And even though they are experienced fishermen, they've, they've reached a point where they think that their lives are actually ending. Notice what they say, we are perishing. And in their fear, they turn to the help of their master And what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping. A violent windstorm, and Jesus is asleep on a cushion in the back of the boat. That detail about the cushion almost makes it seem like Jesus is comfortable. He's got a pillow. And from this detail, people are quick to point out the humanity of Jesus. He is likely tired from a long day of teaching, and so he's sleeping. Lest we think Jesus is some kind of superhuman who can't relate to us at all because he's invincible, Mark records him sleeping. And I think this is actually the only time in the entire gospel that we read Jesus is sleeping. But we know elsewhere from scripture that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He humbled himself and took on flesh so that he could sympathize with our weaknesses. And so he could offer himself as an appropriate sacrifice on our behalf. Most people don't need to be convinced that Jesus is fully human. Uh, Most people find that easy to believe. But I wonder if after this passage and after chapter 5, you'll think that it's easier to believe that Jesus is fully God than harder to believe that he is fully man. In either case, Paul calls this a great mystery. Jesus is sleeping. Back to the disciples. They're so afraid... They wake Jesus up in a fury and the tone they take here is not a gentle stirring. This is a shoulder-grabbing rebuke. They woke him and said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? We do this sometimes, don't we? Do you not care? That's what the disciples do here. They allow their fear to give way to an accusation against God. And that accusation behind the question is that Jesus doesn't care what's going on or else he would save them from the storm. I think it's safe to say that we feel this way at times as well. That he simply doesn't care because we're stuck in the middle of a storm. You know, I don't think that Jesus was just sleeping because he was tired I think that he was actually exemplifying what he taught to them in the series of parables early in chapter 4. Remember how he spoke of the farmer who sowed the word and then slept to allow God to do the work. I think Jesus' life is an example of that as he goes about teaching and preaching and then here, resting. In the Old Testament, sleep is sometimes depicted as an act of faith. Just one example is Psalm 4 verse 8, which says, In peace... I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Jesus contrasts the disciples by modeling perfect trust and obedience in God the Father. Trusting he will complete his mission on earth, which he knew was not going to end at that moment. He knew what he was going to do on earth. And so he could rest peacefully, knowing that God was in control. He knew what would happen in his life. Well, this great windstorm transforms into a great calm. And that's point two. But it doesn't calm on its own. In verse 39, it says, And he, that's Jesus, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Jesus got up and rebuked the wind. And they responded. When was the last time you commanded an inanimate object and it obeyed you? We actually have a saying that speaks to our inability to do this. It's an idiom called barking into the wind. Because you're wasting your breath. The wind won't listen to you. But the wind does listen to Jesus. Rebuked is kind of a strange word here. It's what is often used when speaking about how Jesus deals with demons. He rebukes the nature, and nature halts before him. He says, peace, which is really a a very nice way of putting it. Um, It could be translated, stop screaming or be quiet. And when he says, be still, the literal, literal translation is, be muzzled like you muzzle a barking dog. Suddenly, there is a great calm. Fierce windstorms come and go quickly, but typically, when they go away and the wind stop, it leaves waves for hours. Yet in this instant, the sea is calm. This is the first time in Mark's Gospel we see Jesus wield this kind of authority over nature. Demons? Yes. Paralysis? Yes. Leprosy, yes. The Sabbath, yes. But not nature. And make no mistake, brothers and sisters, there is only one person who has control over nature and all creation in the Bible. It's God. Only God commands the waters. Not only that, but water and God's power over it specifically has rich theological meaning. Water and the sea in prophetic literature often symbolizes chaos and darkness and death. In Genesis 1, God hovered over the darkness and all deep. He separated dry land from the ocean. He raised the sea in Exodus 14 and split it down the middle so His people could cross over on dry land. Psalm 104 says that God set the boundary so that the waters may not pass. Job 38, which our brother Oscar praised God for this morning, says that he tells the waters where they are to go and go no no farther. Jesus unmistakably exercises the power of God in this storm, demonstrating his sovereign power over nature. And brothers and sisters, this is not a magic trick. There is no explanation for this. Experienced fishermen would know what a normal storm looked like and what a normal calming of that, self, of, that, of that storm looked like if it were to do it on its own. This is a matter of authority and obedience. Jesus has authority over all creation because Jesus is God. Well, nature isn't the only thing that Jesus rebukes in this passage. Once the great calm comes, he turns to his disciples. Verse 40. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Which makes clear what we already knew. That the fear of the disciples was not merely an expression of terror but of unbelief. They feared the storm, and they feared for their lives, and so they had forgotten who was with them. They feared the storm more than the one who made the storm, the one who was sleeping in the very same boat. You know, you really want to root for the disciples. Uh, So far in Mark, they seem to be the people that are responding correctly and appropriately, the good examples of faith. Uh, they ask him questions about his teaching for clarification. They leave everything to be with him. But what we find here, and what we'll continue to find until Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ in chapter 8, is that they still don't fully comprehend who Jesus is. And here Jesus asks them if they still have no faith and we're reminded by this that faith should have an effect on our lives this is one of the ways that faith shows up in life, it should inform our thinking, it should still our fears and quiet our hearts this doesn't mean that we won't ever fear or that we're sinning if we do nor does it mean that storms will never come Jesus never promises that storms will never come Nor does he promise he will remove them for us if we have enough faith. But you want to know what he does promise? He does promise, Christian, that he will be with you through it. One preacher said that the greater miracle performed in the life of a saint is not usually deliverance from a storm, but endurance through it. Some of you may be going through storms in your life right now. Some of you may be in the midst of chaotic darkness, and you're wondering if God cares, like many do. You struggle not to lose sight of your Savior. But friend, ask yourself, if that's you, if your fears and anxieties say more about your unbelief in God than about the circumstances of your life. I love what Matthew Henry said about this and about this rebuke. He said, Jesus didn't rebuke them for disturbing him with their prayers, but with their fears. Brothers and sisters, I know it sounds almost too obvious to say, but we must go to the Lord in prayer during difficult times in our life. Time in prayer will quiet a troubled heart and he will not grow weary in hearing them. Let prayer be like a thermostat in your house, indicating the temperature of your faith and turning on the air conditioning when heat rises. Jesus was not angry at them because they didn't know what to do, but because they did not know what to believe. It was their faith that he asked them about. The tragedy is not that we lack expertise or experience or skill or knowledge. It is that we often fail to trust in Jesus and to remember who we are with and to remember the power that we believe in. I can't ignore the detail that Jesus led his disciples into the storm. It was his initiative in verse 35 that caused the disciples to depart. And we already know that he knows what's going to happen in his life. He predicts the future multiple times. He's on a mission that won't end at the bottom of a sea, but on the top of a hill on a cross. He has knowledge of human hearts and thoughts, and he can command the sea. It can only be that Jesus led them out into the storm so that he could reveal more about himself to them. And that's often what storms in our own lives do. They draw us closer to God and show us more of his character. J.C. Ryle said that Jesus loved them too much to avoid the storm. He said this, He's never promised that we shall have no affliction. He loves us too well to promise that. By affliction, he teaches us many precious lessons, which without it, we would never learn. By affliction, he shows our emptiness and our weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from the world, and makes us long for heaven. In the resurrection morning, we shall say with the psalmist, it was good for me that I was afflicted. We shall thank God for every storm. Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock, of ages. Brothers and sisters, Jesus takes them into the storm to show them that he is more powerful than anything they will encounter. A fact that they could not observe from the safety of the shore. Faith does not take away trials, but it calms our hearts through them. This storm was no surprise to Jesus. Neither is any storm that you'll go through in life. We can go through life knowing that God is with us to comfort us in our affliction and to sustain us through any storm. But you know, that's not the main drive of this text. This text is actually what really made me fall in love with expositional preaching that tries to draw the meaning from the text and apply it to life. And because I had heard so many sermons in which the main lesson and the main takeaway of this text was that If your faith is big enough in Jesus, he'll carry you through any storm. That's not the main point. That is a legitimate application, and I don't want to take away from it, take comfort in it, but it is secondary to the primary reason that Mark recorded this event. That primary reason is what gives way to the disciples' great fear. And that's point three, a great fear. Look at verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The disciples are struck with an even greater fear than what they had in the midst of a storm because they realize that Jesus has a power far stronger than the hurricane they were in. They witness the very power and glory of God Almighty, and they react accordingly, with fear and trembling. Though this event, through this event, Jesus shows that he is much more than just a good teacher or another prophet or even a king. He is God himself. And instead of fearing the storm that they're caught in, they should have been fearing the man sleeping in the back of the boat. It's a reminder that Jesus is both our greatest fear and yet our greatest comfort. He's our greatest fear because He is God. He's the one to whom we must all give an account. He's the righteous judge who made all things. He's the one in charge of our eternal souls. And yet, at the same time, though we fear His almighty power, He is our greatest comfort. He is our refuge. It's by his love alone that we can approach him because of what he did when he came on earth. He did not just perform miracles and then leave. His ultimate purpose was to offer himself on the cross as a sacrifice on our behalf. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We get just a sliver of his perfect obedience to God the Father in this passage as he sleeps in trust through the storm. It's interesting to note that here, when Jesus is sleeping, others are awake, panicking. And later on, when others are sleeping, Jesus is awake, praying. Most notably, on the night before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus first came as a servant to us so that in Him we could be saved. And for those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ, your eternal life is secure in Christ and your salvation is as secure as these disciples who sit in the very same boat as the Son of God. When we face the righteous judge, He will not see us alone with a long list of sinful deeds that we deserve. Instead, he will see our Savior, Jesus' perfect obedience. And God's wrath against us will calm like the sea. You know, there's a story in the Old Testament that is too similar to this event to avoid. It's the story of Jonah. Just think about it for a minute. In both stories, there is a list of characters who are on a ship, when a great storm hits. In both stories, experienced sailors are terrified and believe that they're going to perish because the storm is clearly an act of God. In both stories, the main character is asleep on the boat. And in both stories, when the storm calms, the people are struck with the fear of God. But there are some differences. In Jonah, The storm is only calmed after they throw him into the sea. In Mark, Jesus speaks and the storm obeys. In Jonah, he's running away from the Lord's call to go and preach to a Gentile nation. In Mark, Jesus is going willingly to a Gentile nation to preach good news of forgiveness to all people. And it's for this reason in Matthew 12 that Jesus says that just as Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus comes as one much greater than Jonah. And he demonstrates his greatness in our text this morning. This is the reason that Mark records this event, to show us that Jesus is God. He is who he is. And that's my clever way of replicating God's self-revelation to Moses in the burning bush when he says, I am that I am. There are a number of things about this story that evidence it as an eyewitness account. Details that only Mark includes that don't really contribute to the whole story. Like the fact that it was evening time when they departed. Uh, Another is that there were other boats with him the fact that the boat was already filling with water, where Jesus was, his location on the boat, and the harshness of his disciples' rebuke. They aren't the type of details that you would make up if you were fabricating an event. The hero would not be sleeping, nor would his followers scold him like they did and then be embarrassed afterwards. It bears the marks of authenticity, because it was an event that Peter lived through and likely articulated to Mark to record for us. But we must all judge what we have received. In the very first chapter, Jesus rebukes a demon, and the response of those witnessing that revelation of his authority is, What is this? But after stilling the storm, the question becomes much more personal. Who is is this? Jesus rebukes the disciples because they had seen and heard more about Jesus than anyone else up to this point in his ministry. The disciples are faced with a question that all must answer. And I believe that's the reason that Mark himself doesn't answer it for us. Notice there's no verse 42. Mark ends the story so that the reader may supply the answer. The only logical conclusion based on the event that Jesus himself is who he is and that he is both our greatest fear and our greatest comfort. For the disciples, their biggest obstacle was not the storm. Their biggest problem in this story was their unbelief. And when Jesus confronts the disciples and asks them if they still have no faith, the word he uses is actually really unique for unbelief. It's a word that is only used in the whole New Testament, in the book of Revelation, speaking of those who are unbelieving, who will be thrown into the lake of fire. Perhaps part of the disciples' fear was not just the display of God's divine power in Jesus, but also the realization that they had not believed in Him. Have faith in Jesus. Just like the disciples, God has revealed to us the person of Jesus and the authority that he carries. And we too must answer the question, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him?